Um, I just need to recap real quick for you the last uh, bit because it continues to build on uh, a transition that's happening. He's been talking about false, um, false ideas, false spirits that are in the world and those that follow them and their destination. And then in verse 17, he turns his direction back to who he originally addressed, which is those who are called, beloved, and kept in Christ. And so he turns his attention and he says, but you, but you. He's giving this contrast, but you. Um, I, I know that uh, you would have to literally be living under a rock to not know uh, right now this uh, conflict that's going on in the Middle East. And um, whatever your ideas about uh, the right side or a wrong side of that conflict, the fact of the matter is this. There's, there are distinctions and divisions drawn uh, between warring factions, if you will. And uh, somebody's going to come and say, hey, this, this person is right for, for acting this way or doing this, or their response is uh, justified because of this thing or that thing. And the reality is that we all recognize in some, in some uh, fashion that there are distinctions that, that matter, yet the world continually tells us that uh, distinctions are intolerant. They're actually like hateful and bigoted and hypocritical so that when you say, hey, you, you're not part of us or you shouldn't be in this group or you can't be in that group, they, they actually uh, flatten everything out, right? And so the idea of d- divisions or distinctions uh, becomes problematic because the church is built on the idea that uh, distinctions are necessary and divisions are normal and that we have to be able to recognize who is in and who's out and, who, and why. And uh, we, so the introduction last week was about how building on the foundation, the set foundation, means that you and I don't have to worry about where the line is. The foundation line is the line. That's where the division is between in and out. And Christ is that cornerstone, and then the apostles and the prophets give us scripture. And so all we have to worry about is what does scripture say? Now that sounds overly simplified, and it is, but I want to um, draw your attention to the fact that Jude's original warning is that people have, he says, people have crept in unaware. And, And so the point is, he's saying, you have been not paying attention, and there's people coming in that ought not to be in. So in making this, this, uh, you know, this, this plea for us to contend for the face, he's, say, he's saying there's, there's some distinctions. There's, there's people that should be in and shouldn't be in, and you're allowing people to come in who ought not to be in. And so Jude's concern is not about um, uh, people that uh, are being kept out that, that could be in. Or should be in. He, he's not worried about us falsely not letting people into the church. He's, he's worried about people that are coming in because of their indifference. And so um, we are called to contend for the faith in a way that when we, when we pay attention to ourselves and the, the foundation that's laid, we are built up. And so that was where uh, the transition was last week, that we are built up as the spiritual house that um, is built on the apostles and prophets. So he says in verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up. And remember, that's like a collective yourselves and an individual yourselves. But you can't have one without the other. And, and you are not built up individually into the house of the Lord. Though you do uh, have the temple of the Holy Spirit, you are uh, his residence. But we, the church, are the building that's being built up together as a spiritual house for um, God to, God's glory to shine forth in. And then he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then he gives these three ways to do that. So you all building yourselves up in the faith. And then he gives us three things, praying in the Holy Spirit and uh, keeping yourselves in the love of God and waiting for, and then I've highlighted the word, the mercy there, because that's an interesting idea. Because he's talked about the fact that Jesus is going to come back, there's going to be a judgment, and you would think that he says, and Jesus is going to come back and sprinkle rewards and, and, and benefits and gifts on everybody for all those that serve him. But he says, You're, you should be looking towards the return of Christ for the mercy that comes at that moment. And think about that, the mercy that comes, that he's coming with judgment, and so there's only two kinds of things that are going to happen. Either you're going to fully receive the judgment, or you're going to have mercy from that judgment, and that in itself is a reward. So here we're turning ourselves to the idea of building up and still needing distinctions and divisions, and that sounds very um, unloving. You're like, yeah, Mitch, that, like, isn't that a problem that the church is kind of this holy huddle, and we're, and we're telling people that, you know, you really shouldn't do that? And, and so, so there's a problem of this squishy, third-way pragmatism. And this is how we look at the world. And, and I'll get to that in just a second. But I want to share with you uh, from Scripture an, an example of why it's necessary to make distinctions about who is and who is not a part of building up the house of God. So um, in Israel's history, 
God's judgment on them for being unfaithful comes in, in, in a few different ways, but primarily it comes from them being conquered by um, pagan enemies. And they get taken into captivity and exiled for some amount of time. And, and then they eventually get to return back to the land that God has given them, the promised land. And they rebuild society, as it were, and it kind of the, 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 the cycle starts over again and again. And so um, they get conquered by Babylon and they get conquered by Assyria. And the second time they get conquered, they go back and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah um, uh, talk about this rebuilding phase in, in Israel's history. And so as Ezra, uh, who's uh, a prophet for the Lord, as he goes, he's leading back a, a group of exiles that's kind of the second group that gets to go back to the land. And there's been a decree from this pagan this pagan king, I want you to go and I want you to rebuild the, the, the city of God, Jerusalem. And so they're going and they begin to build the temple. And as they're rebuilding the temple, the, the surrounding um, nations, which would have been Samaria and some of these other um, enemies of Israel, come and they want to help Ezra and the Israelites returning back. They want to help them rebuild the temple. And so they kind of offer their help. Hey, we want to, we want to help you guys rebuild the temple. And Ezra sort of refuses their help. Okay, and uh, that happens in Ezra chapter 4. And he's making then a clear distinction between who God has said are his enemies and, um, and he refuses to let them help build the temple. Now it feels like if somebody's gonna help you towards your goal, you should largely be like, well, if you're helping me towards that, like, why wouldn't I take some free help? But he refuses this. And uh, what actually ends up being revealed later on is that S Samaria is always the constant enemies of God. They, they end up building their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which God said, not to do, and uh, that that's, comes to uh, you know fullness when Jesus has that dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, you know, or she she tells him, hey, you say we're supposed to worship on this mountain, but we we worship over here, and he says, you guys are wrong. But so so the idea is this: they kind of had their own ideas about worshiping God. They had their their way of doing things, and they were not fully committed to the way that God said to do things. And so Ezra. Uh, sort of re rebukes them or rebuffs them, their help at that moment. And, and this ends up being a, a big bone of contention between the, the two factions. But the idea is this, there's always a distinction needing to be made between those who are friendly, those who seem to be largely like indifferent to the church, and those who are actually part of the church. And Jesus makes this distinction a necessity in the Great Commission itself. You know, the Great Commission, all of the, the front end of it gets all the publicity, Go, make disciples. We're like, yeah, get out there, make disciples. Just bring as many people as we can in. But Jesus goes on to clarify and qualify what it is that makes somebody a disciple. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So what is it? What is it that you're actually winning them to? Well, you're winning them to a responsiveness to the word of God. The, the gospel is the word of God and a responding to that in faith is what brings you into the church. And so, we, we need to wrap our, eye, our, our, our minds around the idea of the necessary offense of the gospel that brings people in and keeps people in. So, so the border, the, 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 the boundary, if you will, is like, uh, this may be a really bad illustration, but I'm going to go with it because I've been thinking about it all week and I, I think it works, okay? So stick with me, okay? It's like skin, okay? Your skin, you don't think about your skin very often, but it is like the first line of defense for your body, your immune system. It's... Um, some, some weird facts. Your skin's like about 15% of your body weight, okay? So just think about how much skin you're just carrying around. And what it does is it keeps all of the bad stuff out, and, uh, but it's not like solid in itself. There's, you know, there's little gaps and holes in there, but it lets the stuff in that you're supposed to let in, and it keeps in everything that's supposed to be in. Like if you go jump in the pool, you don't just absorb all the pool water, right? Yes? Okay, and just any red substance, your body doesn't take it in and hold it in. Like if you jump in a pool of Kool-Aid or something, it's not like, oh, this is blood, we'll bring it in, right? So your, your, your skin is, has this line of defense, and at the same time, it keeps in everything that it ought to keep in, right? It doesn't let everything weep out unless something is wrong. You with me? Okay, so the gospel is the skin of the church, okay? You must, you must be passing through in a way that is beneficial to the body, and by doing that, if you, if you have faith in the word of God, you, you may pass through and it's what keeps you in. So you always return to it. And if at some point you've not returned to it and, and you're not meeting those standards, then you have lost the faith. So we're gonna use the idea of the gospel skin this morning and the idea that there's a necessary, not just a, a subjective kind of distinction that we use to talk to one another who are supposed to be in the church. 
who's, who, who say, yes, I have faith in the word of God, which means that whenever you are confronted with the word of God, that you should respond in the same way you did initially to the gospel. So that if you're in sin and somebody says, look, the Bible says this, that, right, here's the foundation line, and you're outside of that, then you should go, oh, I, I need to respond again in faith, faith and repentance, and that's what keeps you in the church. But the moment you stop responding to that in faith, then you've put yourself, not by any person inside the church putting you out, but you've put yourself outside of responsiveness to the gospel. Are you tracking with this? Okay, let me pray for us, and then we'll get to the rest of the text this morning. Father, I pray for our time uh, remaining in the word, that you would use it to um, just teach us your um, truth. I pray that uh, it would be your words, not mine this morning, that are heard and said. Um, Keep me from error, and keep our minds and hearts set and focused on what you would want to say to each of us, to either call us back to you, to remind us how we belong and to keep us firm inside of you. So we love you. We thank you for your word that you've entrusted to us, your people, that it would build us up as a body for you. So equip us with what we don't have in ourselves. We need your spirit to give us eyes to see what's true and ears to hear and eyes to behold what is beautiful and good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Y'all amen early, okay? I'll pray a little longer next time, so. Okay. So this idea of that we're waiting for the mercy of um, the Lord. And the, uh, the idea that the world says that mercy and love and grace and compassion is qualified by the idea that there's no, there's, no, there's no distinctions made. Like if you want to be merciful to somebody, you want to be tolerant, you want to be loving, that I can't say... You're, you're bad and I'm good, or I'm good and you're bad, right? And so the idea that, that the, whole, the whole landscape is flattened and we all, we all land on the same even ground, is a, it's a misgiving. And so the world says essentially this, you can't judge me. Why? Well, the reasoning is this, we're all guilty in some way. So you say, hey, you mess it, you mess it up there, I mess it up here, but so we're all guilty. So we've all got problems, so we're all the same. So there you see that, that all distinctions are erased, and then if we're all the same, and then we're all guilty. And so nobody can really say to somebody else, you're right and I'm wrong. Do you see the line of reasoning? This is the line of reasoning that's out in the world, which says, hey, you know, because we're all going to fail in some way, or because we all kind of have our own issues, like, we're all the same. And so they use this idea of judgment being inappropriate. Don't, don't judge me. You can't judge me. You don't have the right to judge me. So Jesus has this... Um, this teaching here in Matthew 7. He says, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Now you might initially read that and say, that's exactly what that says. That says, don't judge lest you be judged. But that's not what it says. It says, whatever, whatever measurement you use to judge others will also be the judgment given to you. Now he goes on to say that there's a way that this plays itself out, which eliminates the, 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 the main accusation of hypocrisy or intolerance or hate. He says, um, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So in this idea, it's like, hey, you've got a speck and I've got a log, but we've all got wood in our face, right? And so let's just all say we're wrong. But that's not what he says. He says, look, one person has a speck, one person has a log, he says, how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? And then he says, you hypocrite. So the problem is not that there's a distinction made between a splinter and a log. The problem is not even erased in the fact there is actually an issue. Somebody's got a log in their face and the other person has a splinter in their eye. Like we, we can't ignore the fact that there's a problem, right? And he doesn't. He says, first, take out the log of your own eye and then you will be able to clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus' end goal? To avoid hypocrisy, but still to make the necessary address of the issue, okay? He wants to, there are issues there. Jesus is wanting us to avoid hypocrisy, but he's not warning us to not judge people or to not judge at all. He doesn't say there is no judgment. He says, judge with right judgment. And so when when you are aware of the fact that you have a problem, you can first get rid of that so that your call to your brother your call to your friend, your call to the person in air is not a hypocritical statement. It's acknowledging, I first have removed this. 
Track with this. I first have removed this so that I can clearly tell you that this can be removed. It's something that needs to be fixed. There is a given truth and we must abide by that. So take note that Jesus does not say, since you don't have a log, don't worry about it. He doesn't say, nobody needs to worry about anything because everybody's got some kind of issue. He says, the judgment we use for ourselves is the measurement we apply to others. And the inverse must also be true. So above that, I have this. If everyone belongs, then no one belongs because belonging has lost its meaning. So if, 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 it's, totally, if it's total tolerance, there's, there's no distinctions made and everybody truly quote unquote belongs, then there is no belonging because everybody's in the same group. You with me? If everyone is accepted, then no one is rejected. And if anything goes, then nothing is wrong. And all of that amounts to Jesus was unnecessary. He's unnecessary. If there's no wrong to be righted, if there's no uh, problem to be addressed, if there's no sin to be removed, then he's, his, his coming, his dying is useless. It was pointless. And we know that isn't true. Okay, why have I, why have I banged on this? Because Jude is moving to what we ought to do for one another and towards those outside. And he uses this word mercy twice. And he's gonna use three examples. Have mercy, save some, have mercy. At the same time, we're anticipating the mercy that comes from Christ. And so this word mercy is an important idea that we need to um, make sure that we understand. So let me give you the rest of this passage here. Because he says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw uh, your pearls before swine lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Somebody asked that in Bible study the other day. And the, the point of what he's saying here is that you must make a, a kind of identification. You, if, if somebody's a, a dog, if somebody's a pig in this particular metaphor, you don't just give them what's holy. You don't include them in on what is something that they have no respect for. Do you see that? So that if all distinctions are erased and everybody's in the church and all sin doesn't matter, then you're throwing holy things before people that don't care for them. Does that make sense? The, the pearl there is the treasure of the gospel, right? So you're, you're putting that before people that don't want it, that don't care about it. And um, so he says, lest they turn and attack you. So the world says that distinction, judgment are unloving, they're inconsider uh, inconsiderate, hateful, bigoted, etc. So we're talking uh, this morning about then what does Jude say? What is the alternative to that? Well, it's to have mercy. So we talked about mercy being a necessity, but the, the quality of, of God is, is merciful, so let me give you a, a comparison about what mercy is and what is not. So mercy is not just grace. That would be um, to, to miss the nuance of it. So if, if, uh, if, if I see an, uh, an old lady, a dear old lady, and she's weak and feeble and she needs to get across a busy street, okay? And I go and I help her across the street. That is both grace and mercy. If I see a uh, swole bodybuilder guy who's carrying, you know, his groceries or whatever, and he doesn't need help across the street. And I go, but I help him across the street. That is grace, but not mercy, okay? One of those things, they're, they're both unmerited. I didn't have to do it. I just go and I do it. So that's grace. You know, it's unmerited favor. You go and you, you, you give somebody something that they didn't earn or didn't ask for, something like that. But mercy has this element of need in it, Okay? It is element of need, but it also carries with it the, the idea of somebody being in the position of strength or in, in the position of authority to help. So mercy is the condescension to a need, right? So we often get it in the sense of somebody being in the position of judgment and having mercy on somebody. The person in the seat of judgment has the strength, they're in the position of authority, and to have mercy on somebody that is in need of that is to exercise mercy. Are you seeing the difference between grace and mercy? So what does Jude say to us? He says, well, have mercy on those who doubt. To save others by snatching them out of the fire and to others show mercy um, with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. And so uh, I've put 21 in there for you just to remind you that we're supposed to be waiting for the mercy of Christ. And so we're supposed to understand how it is that we bring mercy to other people. And um, this is probably helpful for, for you to see when Jesus introduces the idea of mercy for um, his followers, which comes as he's calling um, Levi, who becomes Matthew, the disciple Matthew. And he's, uh, he's called him as a tax collector to come and to serve, uh, to, to follow him. He just says, hey, come follow me. And you have to understand that Levi is living a life of, of sin. He's hated amongst his people. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And Matthew uh, agrees. And he goes 
And he follows Jesus. And the first thing he does is he throws a party for all of his friends, all of his sinners and tax collector friends. And Jesus shows up at the party. And that's a great thing for Matthew and all of his friends and Jesus. But the Pharisees also show up and they have this objection. Jesus, why do you hang out with these sinners, these unrighteous people? And Jesus's answer to them is this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, go and learn what this means. Go learn what this means. Well, he's, he's, made, he's, he's quoting an Old Testament uh, turn of phrase. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is, what Jesus, or this, is what, this is what God says to his people. I desire mercy, not sacrifices. And so if I'm just going to cut through the long, get, get to the bottom line here, it's this. God is not interested in religious performance for your acceptance. He is interested in what he can give you as mercy. And he qualifies that, Jesus does, and he explains it to them as this. I came not for the well, but for the sick. The healthy don't need a doctor, the sick people do. I did not call to come the righteous. I did not call to come the... Why do I keep not saying that right? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he, he pushes it back into their court, and he says, which one are you? And what you need to know is that nobody is in the category of righteous. And everybody's unwell, but they don't see that in themselves. They want to bring sacrifice as their means of acceptance. But God, nobody will be justified by what they bring to God in a religious sense. But God can give all that we need in mercy. And so to give mercy is to, to accept what God can only provide by admitting our need for it. So essentially, Matthew, all of his friends, they, they've admitted they have a need. They, they identify themselves as the unwell, as the sick, as the sinners. You put yourself in this other category of righteous, and so I, you have no need for me. Does that make sense? So he's saying, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and you need to go and learn what this means. And so there's a self-revealing thing that must happen in us. That's that, that's that I've met this, the gospel skin, okay? And whether or not you get to penetrate the skin is determined on how you respond to that. Am I responding to the, the, the declaration that I am in need in, in to repent of my own way, to repent of my own righteousness, and to, to trust in God. So that's the self-revelation that's necessary. And so we are to apply mercy then to the call, not just to those that are outside, that need, that need to know mercy in general, that it's expressed in Christ, but also to those that are inside. Because that's the only way that we, are, that we remain in God. So, 1 Corinthians 5.11, I just want to set this last bit before we attack these three. 1 Corinthians 5.11, and in this uh, letter to the Corinthians, Paul's like trying to sort out all of the problems in this church. And one of the main problems is the fact that they have, they're just tolerating sin, especially just uh, blatant like sexual sin. It's, it's, it's rampant. And he says, I'm writing you in uh, chapter 5, he says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone and then he puts a qualifier on there. Who bears the name of brother? Okay? He says, if somebody's going to say, I, yeah, I have faith in Christ. Yes, I've responded to the gospel. Yes, I've repented of my own righteousness. If, if that's the declaration of their mouth, but their life doesn't line up with it, then you need to understand that they're not, they're, their confession is not in accordance with their life. And so he says, I'm writing to you not to associate with those who are sexually immoral, greedy, idolaters, or verbal abusers, drunkards, swindlers. So he goes down this, this laundry list, if you will, of sins, but he's specifically qualifying it with those who are, if you want to say it this way, the church. Does that make sense? The church, he says, if, if somebody says, I, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I, I, I belong to God, but the, their life doesn't accord with it, then you need to worry about how to address that. So this is what Jude is doing. So if you want to look at it this way, it's a sort of kind of like test. It says, well, you, you're going to either pass this test not on my subjective measurement of I'm better than you, or here's the sin I don't like, okay? And, and that's where the church sort of recoils and they, and they, get, they get worried. Listen, if, if, it, if the church is qualified based on your subjective standard of holiness, meaning like if we can only be as good as our best person, we're all in trouble, okay? But that's not the standard. The standard is, we're all in the same pool of needy and unrighteous. We're all in the pool of sick. But will you repent and trust in Christ? And once you've crossed that threshold, that remains the test. It's not what sins you're not committing. Does that, are you hearing me? 
It's not this, you are not a Christian because the sins you do not commit. I just scared some of you guys. Listen, the, the church is so afraid to call sin, sin, because we think we're, we're, using, we're holding ourselves up as the standard. And we can't say to anybody, else, well, I'm better than you. You're not, but you're saved, okay? And that's, that's a, an important distinction. So those that are within the church, their confession must match the fact that they, if, they're, if, if they are addressed with sin or they're addressed with some way that they've stepped outside of God's word, they're responding to that, not to you. Does that make sense? You're not calling them to your standard. You're not saying, hey, you're not living up to what I think you ought to do. You're saying, here's what Jesus says. Here's what God has said. Your life should accord with this. And then if they don't respond to that, well, there's your indication. Okay, I've got to move on. So the first one is, have mercy on those who doubt, then save others by snatching them out of the fire and show mercy, aiding even the garment uh, that is stained by the flesh. So learn what this means. Desire, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, Okay, so we have these three examples here. There's the intellectually endangered, there's the imminently endangered, and there's the indifferently endangered. I don't think this is like an escalating case just because in the middle he's got this sandwich of somebody that you're supposed to save. You're supposed to snatch them from the fire. But if we're just going to address these in order, the first one is that he says, have mercy on those who doubt. And I, I, there's an important distinction to make here because you might confuse the idea of doubt and unbelief, and those are different. Doubt is, is, is acceptable. It's, it's common. It occurs all the time. It is, it's, it's being unconvinced. And can I tell you, there's a lot of doubt that goes around in the world because you look around at the world and you see what God says in his word, and it feels like righteousness is not prevailing, but evil is winning, right? And you begin to doubt whether or not things will come to fruition. You begin to doubt whether or not you can make it in the world, right? And so doubts creep in all the time, and those aren't a problem. But when doubts refuse to be addressed, they move to the category of unbelief, and that is a sin. Unbelief is a sin. That's a sin that will actually keep you out of heaven. That's one of the sins listed in Revelation. So doubt occurs all the time, even at times where we would, ought, we would think we wouldn't see it. Um, one of those times is in um, uh, Matthew 28, just before Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, but right before he gives the Great Commission, he, uh, the, the disciples are going to meet him at the Mount of Olives. And it says, when they saw Jesus, it says, um, some worshiped, but some doubted. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Okay, so you've got to get the picture here. Jesus has been resurrected. He's appeared to many people over 40 days. He's been teaching them. And yet at this moment, it says some worshiped and some doubted. If there's like a moment that you would think that you wouldn't see doubt amongst the people, but here it is. But this a doubt is addressed by truth. It's addressed by truth. And the truth that is addressed, the doubt of whoever was in this group and, and whatever aspect of it is that they're not sure about. Maybe it's like, hey, you know, we followed Jesus. He died. We were kind of worried. There was a lot of doubt in those few days. And then we saw him resurrected. Thomas doubted. And Jesus showed him infallible proofs. He says, put your hands, uh, put your finger in my hands, my side. There's truth, right, to address doubt. And then um, Thomas turns and says, my Lord, my God. So his, his doubt is overcome. So over this period of time, though, they've seen Jesus eat food. I mean, he's like a physical guy. He's come and he's opened their minds to the scripture. I mean, there's a lot of insight that's happened. So why is there doubt at this moment? Well, in Jesus's response to the doubt, he gives the Great Commission, and it starts with all authority. All authority is given to me. So, therefore, going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That's the truth that is meant to address the doubt. So whatever it is that they're thinking at that moment, which is probably like, if Jesus leaves, how are we going to accomplish this? Well, all authority is mine, and I'm giving that to you, and you're going to be able to overcome. So doubt must be addressed by truth. And so we are to, um, not to um, condemn or, or be frustrated with people who can't sometimes see the truth amidst a, a situation that seems dire. Like in a dark world, you have to just kind of maybe sometimes point them back to the light that's shining so they can see it again. That's how you address doubt with mercy, okay? So we're not supposed to condemn or, 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 or be mad that somebody is having a moment of, of not knowing or weakness, but it is when they move to the category of, well, I refuse to listen to what truth says, and they, and they rebuke that, and they go to unbelief. Well, then they become part of um, the nation of Israel that, he, that Jude has already used as an example of those who fell in the desert, those who were overthrown, people who did not have um, 
trust in God. And so they, they had the sin of unbelief. And um, so the next one are those who are, um, so they're intellectually endangered, right? It's, in, it's somewhere in their, their head. And, and the church should gather around them and use scripture however possible, the, the Holy Spirit praying with them, just doing your best to strive with somebody who's in doubt. But if they don't respond to truth, then they've moved to unbelief. You see the inside, outside the skin. Are you tracking with the metaphor still? I'll do it again, okay? All right, so imminently endangered is the next one. This one is more urgent. It's dire. If you think about the idea of just anybody being, um, you're like at a campfire or something, and you see somebody teeter and totter, and they fall into the fire, are you going to be sort of like, oh, maybe they'll make it out? No, right? You're going to jump up into action. You're going to snatch them out of the fire. You're not going to try and like find a stick and roll them out. You're going to probably endanger yourself in some way too to try and rescue them from the danger that they're in. Are you, are you with that? right? But here's what he's not saying. He's not saying you need to go enter into sin and physically remove people from sinful situations. So here's, what, what is he saying? Well, fire is an example here, and it's typically used in scripture to talk about judgment. So judgment raining down from God or, or being part of God's judgment, being tried by fire. And um, if you think about the example that he uses earlier about Sodom and Gomorrah and how the angels had transgressed their proper boundaries and um, this, this city that's just full of sin and there are um, just one, one small group of people who are snatched out of that city as fires rain down on it. They're rescued from the imminent judgment of God away from sin and Lot is rescued with his daughters, but his wife doesn't quite make it out. But so you see the idea of being rescued from judgment is, is what he's talking about here. So there's, there's a judgment that's occurring, and to, to snatch somebody out of the fire is to remove them from the judgment. Now, I have to say, I don't think he's talking about people that are saved, because the, the saved do not need to worry about judgment unless they're engaging in a sin that does lead to death. So I have a couple qualifications on that, and I'll help you with that. So Galatians tells us to restore anyone who is caught in sin or a trespass with a spirit of gentleness. But here he's saying there's an urgency needed because there's an imminent judgment. And and what is it that they're engaged in? Well, it's something that's going to to bring judgment on them. I'll I'll give you two examples. One is um, sort of uh, just like right now. I mean, it's pertinent, okay? So in Romans 1, when, when... uh, Paul is making his argument about the, the, the logical progression of when God takes his hands of restraint off of a people, okay? When he says, you know, I'm not going to restrain Eve, I'll just let you continue to be further and further depraved. They're, they're going to move from natural to unnatural. Things go from okay to, bad, to worse, 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 right? So he takes his hands off, and that is a kind of judgment. That is God's judgment on a people, okay? So think about this. If you see people who are captured in the kind of spirit of the world, the, the ideas of the world today, the arguments, the, the thoughts of the world, there are people that are eminently in danger of fire, okay? They've been turned over, in a sense, to, to their own ways, to their own thoughts, to their own mind, and they're in danger of fire. And so it's, when we say something like, that's crazy, why do people say that? Or why do people think that? That's just you vocalizing the end, the terminus of, Romans 1. That's where it winds up. And we're called to talk to those people with truth. We save them. The word there is sozo. It's like literally the, the word for savior. Jesus, savior. That's, we, you, by, by giving them truth, you're, you're giving them the opportunity to come back to what, is, um, to, to what is right and to respond to the gospel in the right way. We're supposed to call people that are lost in sin, falling into the fire and um, you do that one way by giving them the gospel to tell them that, that you've, you've gone astray. Here's what's true in the world. And then you're, you are only responsible for giving that, not for the results of that. But listen, they can't respond if you don't give it. How can they believe what they haven't heard, right? And it, so you must speak. You must give uh, what is true so that they can respond to it. So that's one way. Another way is you might be, you might have somebody in your life that is in sin, okay? And um, you know, I, I I don't have time to explain it, but I have to say it. So listen, like all sin is not equally going to lead to the same direction, but there are sins that lead to death. As in, there, there's a way that you can sin that's egregious that God will take your physical life. And there, there's no hard line on that in terms of why God 
does or does not do something. But the, the, the idea is this. If you respond to the call back, return back to the Lord, okay, then you, you exercise what Jesus says in Matthew 18 for how you return somebody from their heirs, then you've won that person back to Christ. So we're supposed to do that with an urgency some, and being snatched out of your way of thinking, your way of life, your way of doing things, especially when you're engaging in something that feels fulfilling is going to be somewhat harsh or feel harsh anyway. But in Matthew 18, Jesus um, gives us pretty, pretty distinct directions. If somebody uh, has, is in air, he says, go to your brother, show him, show him the air. If they refuse to listen, go back, return with two people and, and show them again the error of their way. If they refuse to listen even to two people, then it says, go and tell it to the whole church. And if they refuse to listen even to that, right? So you've got like three steps here. And if they refuse even to listen to that, then let them to be to you like Gentiles and tax collectors. So he says, what they've done essentially by not responding to truth about sin, about what's happening in the world, about their way of thinking, they've, they've identified themselves as people who have not received the gospel, who don't have faith in what is true. Right? And so they put themselves on the outside because they've lacked that responsiveness to God. So, um, uh, so when, when somebody is to, uh, to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector, it doesn't mean we say, hey, you know, you're, you're lost forever and ever. It says we, we treat you like somebody who needs to have the gospel again. So it's not a different appeal. It's the same appeal, but you've not responded to the uh, rebuke for repentance. So we, we, tr- we go back to the, the initial step. All right. James 5.20 says this, My brothers, if any of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, consider this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death. That's not a phrase that you use about somebody that's saved. So turning a sinner from their ways is to save them from death. To be snatched out of the fire of judgment is to save a soul from death. God uses the means of the church, of his gospel, of the word, of the Holy Spirit to bring people and snatch them out of the fire. And so we're supposed to be engaged actively with that. When we see people that are lost in their thoughts or lost in sin, then we're supposed to use those means to, to help to bring them out of the fire. The last one is they're indifferently endangered. So here's the problem. We've got some people that have maybe had a profession of faith and they're in sin. And so we can go to them, we can address that sin initially and then they don't respond, so then we address them with the gospel. Then there's people who are sinning in a way that shows they don't have, either they've never heard the gospel or they're indifferent to the fact that there is a judgment coming. And so it says to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. He talks about this garment here. Hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. The, the, the words here have to do with um, like underwear, if you want to think about that. And the stains there are what you would expect to find in underwear, Okay. So there you go. He's talking about the idea of something being so close and being stained by what, what humans do naturally, by things being close to us. And that's all that we can produce. If you, if you put on clothes and you never change them, they're going to be dirty, right? It's just, it's just what happens. And so he's saying, you need to identify this garment and you need to hate that. But I, I want to make a, a careful um, distinction here because this is where I think a, another place where the church has... Uh, failed in some ways. I, I, I told you guys about the example of Andy Stanley a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, he had, this, uh, he had this conference. And after the Sunday after that, in his sermon, he said, I want to be a church that draws um, circles, not lines, which is, which is exactly the opposite of what I said last week. So if he wants to arm wrestle about it, we can. But look, the, the point is this. Um, because Andy Stanley has people that either he cares for or he's seen are just people that he likes. They, they seem to be like good people, you know? And, and so he's conflated the person with the sin. He's conflated them and he says, how can I say to this person, you know, you, that you don't love God? And so, so he's, he's, he's compromising in that way. And the, the, the problem there is failing to make the distinction between the garment and the garment wearer. So was, Jude says, Hate the garment of sin. And so we, we often have that, we, we have the phrase, but we don't execute it well, right? We say, hate the, hate the sin, love the sinner. Hate the sin, love the sinner. But then we, we fail to actually like live that out in what it means. And what it actually means is you have to actually genuinely extend the gospel to people that you may not feel like are in a place that 
um, can receive it. But that's their only means of being reconciled. Let me give you a quick rundown. Jesus did genuinely extend the gospel invitation regardless of people's circumstances. When he called Levi out of his tax collecting world, this was like his job, his life. Everything that he is is wrapped up in what he does. And he says, come follow me. And in that moment, Matthew, Levi, Matthew, leaves all of that. And then he goes and he invites all of his friends. And Jesus, amidst all these friends, is okay dining and having food and having fellowship with all of those people that he ought not to have fellowship with. Now think about this. The problem is not having fellowship with sinners who don't know God. The problem is when you, when, when people proclaim to know God, but they have not, they don't have that in their lives. That's why the first Corinthians five matters. Don't, don't have anything to do with people who say they love God, who say they've uh, responded to the gospel, but don't really love him. That's the problem. It's not the people that are on the outside that we're supposed to reject. Of course, they're going to live like they are. Of course, they have sin in their lives. Jesus, that's why he's always hanging out with unrighteous people and sinners. That's, that's his only choice, by the way. He's the only guy that falls into the other category, right? So that's all the people he hangs out with. But here's the thing. So when, when we say, look, we, we conflate the sin and the sinner, then we're tempted to uh, erase all the distinctions and say, well, and then it doesn't matter. No, the distinction matters because that's the only way that you can be brought in. So once you make the distinction, then you can also make the offer. So Jesus genuinely makes the offer and the invitation regardless of circumstances or history. And he knows that not everybody who follows him or proclaims to follow him is actually truly following him. Judas being the prime example of that. And he did call people out of their lives to repentance and discipleship, which is obedience. That's what Jesus says. Go make obedient people. Go make disciples. But he did not do this. He did not ever erase the truth. He did not soften the truth. And he did not just compromise on what needed to be said. He did not bargain with anyone about being part of the group, but go ahead and live however you want. In fact, we constantly see people walk away because Jesus refused to compromise on the truth. So when the truth meets people, they decide to go in or out. That's, that's what happens. So here's what... Judah's telling us to do. Contend for the faith by the people that are indifferent to the fact that they're, they're, they're wearing a stained garment. But you also need to recognize this with fear in your life. That, that fear is the fear of God. That you understand that God is the only one that can have mercy on them. And you're offering the gospel knowing that it's the sin, not the sinner, that is who you're supposed to be um, addressing. Did I say that right? I think I did. If I didn't, Pretend I did it the other way and that I, it was really profound, okay? Here's the thing. I'm sorry, guys. I'll tell you a story later, but I'm a little worn today. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, that we should lay aside every weight and sin that clings closely. It's this, whatever, whatever is close to you will be tarnished, even if you love God. And so there's gotta be, there's gotta be an address for this. Being unclean, is a problem, especially for a religiously observant Jew. He's, he's talking about uh, what sin does for our, our life and what we appear to, to be before God. So there's a kind of contamination that sin puts on our garment, if you will. And it's serious, but it has a remedy. And so in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, this guy gets beat up and left for dead, and he's got blood and whatever else on him. And, and the priest passes him by and the Levite passes him by. And so all the people that we expect to help him are, are avoiding something. They're avoiding contamination. They would have been ritually unclean if they touched this guy and they had bodily fluids or whatever. But we see the Samaritan fulfilling the law by breaking the law, if you will, by doing what God wanted, what God required, but doing it in a way that did not have a, like a religious performance part of it. He gives mercy to the person that needed mercy. He was in a position to help. The guy needed something and he executes on it. The challenge for us is that um, we think that we don't have the right to give mercy or to extend mercy because we're in a place of needing it as well. But that's exactly why you're in the position to do it. Love the sinner, or yeah, love the sinner and hate the sin. Our effort to keep the gospel pure 
is also the same effort that keeps the church pure. To ask anybody to respond to this truth, the only way that you and I are saved is by the mercy of God. Everybody falls into, and that's where the even ground is. Listen, the only, the thing that we all have in common is the only way into the church is Jesus. Okay? That's the common need of everybody. But the, the thing that, the thing that separates us is your response to that truth or your recognition of that truth. Your recognition of that truth. So when he, when, when Jesus has this interaction and the Pharisees say, why are you hanging out with these sinners and these tax collectors? And so essentially the question is this, like, hey, how do you justify hanging out with these sinners? And Jesus's response is, how do you justify your relationship with God? That's what he asks them. What's your justification why you're accepted? And he asks it in the form of a question. Well, I, I came to call the righteous, or I came to call the sinners, not the righteous. The thing is that the Pharisees counted themselves as righteous. They didn't count themselves as those who were sick. They counted themselves as healthy. So their recognition of their need for mercy was lost. This is why he says, you need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because all of their religious doing caused them to think they were not in need, right? Which is the only thing that's required to get in, is to admit need and need and accept that need and have faith in that uh, reciprocation from Christ that he's able to address that. So we're not gatekeeping. The, the gospel is not gatekeeping as in, I'm gonna keep you out because I don't like you. I'm gonna keep you out because you sinned in this way that I, I don't think is right, okay? That accusation needs to miss the mark. If, you, if you're trying to measure your Christianity by any subjective measure that's by your own, then you will be inevitably engaged in hypocrisy because you are not the standard. You are not the measure. Jesus is. And everybody, everybody brings the same stained garment before God. Everybody does. So we all need something that we don't have, which is righteousness. And when you come to God with that need, he's glad to fulfill it for you. The thing is, if you don't think you need it, you can't have it. So I, I want to end this morning by um, giving you what is most uh, certainly what Jude has in mind here, this picture in, um, about snatching some from the fire and uh, the garment stained by the flesh. It occurs in uh, Zechariah 3. And um, let me set this picture before you. Zechariah is a prophet, and uh, Joshua is the high priest. And he, so as the high priest, he represents the people, the people of Israel. He's, he, goes and he, he goes in before the Lord, and he, he offers their the sacrifices in the temple. But he's um, given a special set of, of garments, the high priestly garments that he's supposed to wear, and um, they're supposed to be kept clean. They're supposed to be, um, you know, to represent that he's bearing uh, the, the sins before God and that um, he's, he's representing the people. I think I'm saying that correct. <laughs> My mind is a little jumbled today. I'm sorry. So he, it says that he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What's, what's happened here is that um, Israel has been rescued out of judgment of God. They've been rescued from being in exile. And here is Joshua representing them. And, and what is rightly recognized here is there are people that, of course, have been rescued out of their sin and misery. Of course, this is what they are. And so he says, the Lord rebuke you. Are these not a people who uh, were plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. This is the exact same phrase that Jude has used. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Do you see the thing here? Joshua comes representing the people. That's us, everybody. This is all that you can bring. All of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. That's why Paul says, What you need you don't have, and what he, you have to trust in a righteousness that is not your own in order to be saved. You have to be clothed with something that you cannot bring. And this is what happens for Joshua as an example for us. He is a high priest that represents humanity. 
in this sense, and he's clothed in filthy rags. And the angel of the Lord here is Christ, who says, rebuke you, Satan. Is this not somebody that I've rescued from my judgment? And then his response is not, is, is not well, yes, he's dirty, and that's okay. He says, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you what's right, what you should have before the Lord, which is clean, pure clothing. That is the righteousness that we do not bring, which is given to us. So don't miss the whole of this. Jude wants us to contend for the faith by going and having mercy with people who are, are lost, they're, they're, they're not sure about what they see in the world and they have doubts about whether or not things will come to fruition and promises will be kept until so we bring them back to the word. And we're supposed to save people, snatching them from the fire of God's coming judgment because they're engaged in sin. But some people are even indifferent to that fact. That there is a judgment coming, but that there's a solution to it and it's God's mercy to clothe them with a righteousness they don't have. So you are not Christian today because of anything in you, but because something giving to you. And you are given that because of your admittance to that, your need, your asking, your pleading, and accepting what's given in mercy. So you're not Christian because you've earned it by not sinning or avoiding a particular sin, or because you're uniquely knowledgeable in the scripture, because God needs your special words to help other people come, right? That's not what's, what's being given here. We all rest in mercy because we admit our need, and that is the gospel skin. So I'll conclude this morning by um, directing your attention to this reality. If we, if we find at a moment that we're, we're in one of these categories, the, the, the question, the, the test is, how do you respond to what's true? How, how do you respond to God's word? Not, not, some, somebody's measurement of what you should do and shouldn't do, if they can show you, it says here, this is, this is the only way to be saved. Hey, it says here that this is not how you ought to live. And your response to that is, well, I'll do it my own way. Or if it's repentance and faith, well, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. If not, then you move, you progress through the steps of Matthew 18. Let me pray. Father, Father,